gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. I am uh, on my heel. I will talk about it more uh, uh, on the, probably the solo, but I just got back from Ohio where I did a civic debate with Ezra Klein, um, civic and civil debate with Ezra Klein of the New York Times, and uh, had to be up at four in the morning to come back to teach uh, or lead some seminar thing for somebody. Anyway, uh, so I'm kind of bleary eyed. I'm in a borrowed office. And, but in the grand tradition of this podcast, where everyone is just zigging towards rank punditry, because that's what everyone's talking about in the wake of the New Hampshire uh, primary, um, I'm going to zag towards making everybody eat their spinach. And so my go-to guy for uh, fiscal uh, and public fisc um, spinach eating is my friend Brian Riedel of the Manhattan Institute, senior fellow over there. Green-eyed shade dude, and as we were talking about before uh, we got started, the challenge with having Brian on here is that I believe I have this fiduciary obligation to remind people that debt and deficits are bad, and that overspending is bad, and that entitlement reform is necessary, and so I, every now and then I feel like we have to revisit these issues. And on the other hand, it's like watching a slow-moving runaway train that every... 20 minutes, you bring a guy back and says, yeah, it's still going to plow into that town. And it's not like totally new. It's not kind of like uh, new facts. It's just things look bad. So uh, we'll try to make this as lively and as exciting as possible. Um, and uh, and Brian's just the guy to do it. So Brian, welcome back to The Remnant. Thank you for the, uh, the, the the kind and most mostly flattering introduction. <laughs> well, I mean, you, it has to be very frustrating for you right like like our foreign policy friends like facts change events change you know like even with our iran which has been the same problem for a very long time like they're new developments right someone gets taken hostage or the houthis get involved or something like that with you guys it's it's kind of like you're the dude in the matrix that's just these numbers going by on a screen and you're like yeah here we go again kind of thing do you have you started cutting yourself that, that, that's fair. I mean, the only issue is, how, you know, how rapidly things are getting worse. I know I can be kind of repetitive when I say things are getting worse, things are getting worse. Sometimes it's things have been a little less worse for a little while and or things have gotten more rapidly worse than I thought they would be. But I mean, clearly, yeah, I mean, fiscal issues, it's, it's, it's a crisis. It's getting worse. And, you know, I usually wish I could have good news. I have nuances. I have interpretations of uh, where the debate is right now, but I generally the path is negative. All right. So let, let, we'll, we'll get to all that. We'll do some punditry and all this. And, 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 and um, you had a good piece a few days ago at the dispatch about revisiting Medicare and entitlements and whatnot. But why don't you do this sort of like you're called in to explain to the local Kiwanis club or the official order of the Buffalo, which I think was the club in the, in the, in the Flintstones, give the sort of basic three to five minute, you don't have PowerPoint here, but you know, what, what is that? How your fiscal house in is in disorder summary. Yeah. I mean, just to give the basic 30,000 foot, um, 
the deficit last year doubled from one to two trillion dollars. That's if you adjust for the student loan bailout, uh, not which which did not happen. This was nearly unprecedented to have the deficit jump a trillion dollars in one year during peace and prosperity relative has never happened in American history. And this this should alarm a lot of people. It was the largest deficit we've ever had in American history outside of war and recession. And like I said, it doubled in one year. It's going to get worse. The deficit's going to go to three to four trillion dollars in a decade. Because you not only have 74 million retiring baby boomers, but you also have rising interest rates. And that's the real thing that may accelerate the debt crisis, is rising interest rates on a debt this big. What does this all mean? From What, what it generally means is over the long term, we really just have a choice between addressing Social Security and Medicare or doubling middle class taxes. That's what it means to your pocketbook. There's really, we haven't been able to reform these programs because everybody's looking for a third option. Everybody, I, you know, when I, I go on Twitter and I explain this and everybody says, no, 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 cut foreign aid, tax the rich, cut welfare, raise immigration, cut immigration, defund Ukraine. Everybody has their magical solution that's going to avoid the tough choices. The problem is none of those come close to being enough. So really, the choice is either refix Social Security and Medicare, which face a $116 trillion shortfall over the next 30 years, or we double middle class taxes. And what's happening right now is we're choosing nothing. We're choosing neither, which more than likely sets us up long term for the doubling middle class taxes. That's what Donald Trump and Joe Biden are really setting us up for. They mean they're not going to tell you that, but they're setting us up for an eventual doubling of middle class taxes. Essentially, European taxes, but without the European social benefits for the middle class paying those taxes. Imagine being taxed like Swedes, but it all going to the baby boomers rather than coming back to you for child care, family leave, education, and health care. And as interest rates rise and politicians become more irresponsible, the day of reckoning just moves up. All right. So, I mean, because we do this gut chit thing every like six months, I, I know what you're referencing here, but like we should explain to people. Why does it have to be middle class taxes going up, right? Why why can't the millionaires and billionaires pay for everything? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, if you, I had an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal on this yesterday, which came from a report I wrote in September called "The Limits of Taxing the Rich," because Bernie and Elizabeth Warren will all tell you just tax the rich, and it's true that there are ways in which you can tax the rich more. There are loopholes you can get rid of. There are tax rates that can rise modestly for the rich. But what I did in my report was I said, okay, let's set every corporate and an individual tax policy for the richest 2% to the highest possible rate. Let's put every tax policy at the revenue maximizing rate for businesses and the richest 2%. And what I calculated is that if you did that, you would raise about one to one and a half percent of GDP out of a deficit that's currently 7% of GDP and heading towards 10. So it is 
essentially mathematically impossible to raise taxes for the rich by more than one to one and a half percent of GDP. And just to kind of put a finer point on that, if you seized every dollar from every billionaire, and I mean every house, car, yacht, you liquidated their business, you liquidated their stock holdings, you'd fund the government one time for nine months. If you taxed every dollar earning over 500000 at a 100% rate, you still wouldn't balance the budget. So the point of my report was, sure, I think taxing the rich should be on the table as part of a comprehensive solution. But the idea that you know taxing Bill Gates and Exxon is going to avoid the tough choices for middle-class taxes and Social Security and Medicare is just a fantasy. The numbers don't work. So it's funny, um, like the tax the billionaires thing is the most common one. Uh, also, the foreign aid thing, which goes back 50 years, right? These the basic innumeracy where there's some tiny amount of spending that people don't like. And so they assume it's like, you know, 50% of the budget when it's like 0.5% of the budget or something like that. If that, um, just out of curiosity, and it's perfectly fine if you don't have a serviceable answer, but like I used to do a lot of stuff on college campuses where with like lefties and stuff. And I remember I, I for a while I did this, um, this weird movable feast of a thing called the Spitfire tour where I was like the token conservative and there was like the Indigo girls and Jello Biafra from the dead Kennedys and all these kinds of people on the thing. And the number of people on the left who said, if we legalized weed and taxed it, it would pay off the debt. Or if we got rid of organized religions, tax exemption, it would pay off the debt. Has anyone actually looked at like how far short of the mark either of those things would be? I mean, it can't be true, right? It's funny you bring that up because the past couple of years, I've been a judge for a national college competition on how to solve the deficit. And nearly every college proposal I get, I couldn't believe it. It was legalized and tax weed, legalized and tax. It was the centerpiece of their plan. And, and I think I calculated once that for this to balance the budget, every man, woman, and child would have to smoke 200 pounds of weed a year uh, <laughs> in order to raise enough money. Um, I mean, if you legalized pot and taxed it, I think you could make about $20 billion a year. Um, I mean, which is roughly, you know, alcohol taxes are about $20 billion a year. Uh, I think weed may be a little bit more than that. Um, I, I am hearing a lot. In fact, when I had my Wall Street Journal op-ed yesterday, I got a bunch of emails for people that said, what about taxing not just churches, but nonprofit hospitals, better taxing university endowments? In talking to experts on that, they've estimated you could get about 40 to 50 billion a year if you did all of those. So you can make it part of the solution. It's not going to fix everything. Um, and so I, I think, sure, put them in the mix. Of course, it's, it's, it's hard to define taxing nonprofits is hard to define what's legitimate nonprofit, what's legitimate charity, what looks like for profit, but it's called nonprofit. The devil's in the details. I mean, I, I don't want to take anything off the table, but I'm not, I'm not smoking 200 pounds of weed a year just to balance the budget. Right. And then also, I mean, just, I mean, it's important, you know, one of the 
central planks of conservatism is to understand that there are trade-offs with everything, right? And like we're seeing some of the trade-offs with with weed. I'm not I don't mean to get it, but like if you start taxing nonprofits and um there are just cascading consequences that have that come from that, both in terms of like you can't you can't tax the nonprofits but still give people a tax write-off to donate to the nonprofits, right? And so like there's enormous amount of vital social work that is done outside of the realm of government. And the assumption behind all this is that the government would do it better if you, if you, if you got these groups out of the way. And I just think that that's um, a contestable proposition. We have to be careful how we do these. I mean, uh, once it's the same thing when people say, you know, get rid of all itemized deductions. I think that there's a case for getting rid of all itemized deductions, but by far the most expensive itemized deduction is charitable giving. And a lot of people say, you know, we need to expand charitable giving incentives even for people who don't itemize. And so, again, the devil's kind of in the details in terms of, you know, get rid of loopholes, you know, start making sure that that hospital or that credit union that acts for profit is taxed. Those might be the kind of in theory, easier calls, but you really quickly get into the harder calls, you know, the soup kitchen, uh, the, the real charity, and somehow you have to write, you have to write the law to, to smartly make the distinction between the deserving and the undeserving beneficiaries of these tax breaks, and it gets really hard. I'm not saying don't do it, uh, but I'm saying it's, it's not as clean as, as, as has been suggested. Yeah, I mean, just, just another question on this, just on pure curiosity. The charitable deduction stuff, you can max that out, right, on your income taxes. It's not bottomless, right? You can't, so like most of the billionaires who build a hospital wing or fund a orphanage or whatever, how much of the tax incentive for the charitable stuff is in that? Because my understanding, and maybe I'm wrong, is that when you're talking about the really rich people, they they're not building cancer wards for children's hospitals for the tax write-off per se um or is that still part of it large i mean it used to be that there were more guardrails in the tax code amt the alternative minimum tax used to be much more aggressive than it is now but there aren't a large there aren't a large number of guardrails i i don't know if there's no limit but you can go pretty high on the charitable deduction um, what a lot of businesses, though, try to do is completely set up like entire trusts to make their entire estate non-taxable when they pass it down to heirs. That's where I think you see a lot more of the abuses because it kind of becomes a way to permanently shield wealth and capital gains from from taxation. But, you know, in some of those instances, though, the, the the trusts can be legit or they can be almost fake trusts where you're really just putting the money back into something that benefits your own family rather than the public good. That's where a lot of the, the abuses are. All right. So let's get back to the real wonkery rather than my casual journalistic questioning. And I probably should have asked you before we started recording because I do not want to start a Manhattan Institute AI Tong war. But uh, <laughs> um. My friend and colleague, um, Andrew Biggs, has co-authored this idea, report thing about using subsidies for retirement plans to fix Social Security. Have you looked at this? 
briefly. Uh, it's it's. A, Could you explain it to me? Because I haven't really looked at it. I just know he came out with it, and people were talking about it. Yeah, I mean, what what what, what Andrew has proposed, and I apologize to my friend Andrew if I'm not summarizing it well, is helping pay for Social Security by limiting uh, the tax break for 401ks for upper income individuals. You know, when you put money in your 401k, it's generally untaxable. If you put money in an IRA, it's generally untaxable uh, or tax-free until you retire, it's tax-deferred. What Andrew said is, let's, if we start taxing directly the 401k and IRA contributions of upper income individuals, we can use that money to close a significant portion of the social security gap. The surprising angle of that is conservatives have typically wanted to promote more private savings to move away from dependence on social security. And and what Andrew is saying is, let's further discourage 401ks so that we can fund social security more. It's it's a lot more revenue heavy for a social security fix. And it's it's at done at the expense of 401ks. Now, Andrew argues in his paper that the tax incentive is really overrated in its effect, that it doesn't have a huge effect on rich people's 401ks, that they're going to put the money in whether there's a tax benefit or not. I don't I don't know enough to dispute that. But I my first guess and my first blush response was surprise at the idea of limiting 401ks and IRAs in order to prop up more of the the government retirement fund. I've generally gone the other direction that we need to do a better job incentivizing people to build their own retirement and be less dependent on social security. But Biggs is a smart guy and I'm sure he if he were here he would have a very intelligent response. Yeah, no, at some point I, I it's weird I actually have never had him on um which is weird cuz Probably because he moved out of D.C. and I just, you know, forget about him until he comes up with this number crunching stuff. Okay, so let's do a little on the rank punditry side. There used to be a time where it was a somewhat fruitful conversation to talk about which party was better on these kinds of issues. It feels, I mean, like, again, you're like the Maytag repairman, right? I mean, like. People haven't really cared about debt and deficit stuff in a serious way for a while, but um, we are now in a moment where policy just really doesn't matter in the political discourse in ways that I've never seen before, right? It's like it's, it's, it's not driving anything of significance in the Republican debates because it's are the Republican primaries, which are now all but over. You know, Nikki's the last one standing. Donald Trump contradicts himself all the time. Um, House Freedom Caucus guys, some of whom I think are more serious people than others. I think that's a fair thing to say. We can debate whether the most serious people in House Freedom Caucus are actually serious um, or whether we are just grading on a curve because they're more serious than the clowns who are less serious than them, right? So like, there's an argument to be had there. But when you look at elected officials today, I'm not saying anyone have to be Obi-Wan Kenobi or my only hope, but like, are they, is there anybody who you think is actually in good faith working on this stuff in a productive way? Oh, wow. Not many. Um, 
Republicans are really good at giving speeches about fiscal responsibility. They're really good at peppering in commentary on Joe Biden's runaway spending and deficits, and we are going to cut waste and balance the budget and stop robbing from our kids. But it's all just, it's all hot air. And if you're looking for Republicans behind the scenes who are really taking the issue seriously, frankly, most of them have left in the last few years. Jeff Blake, Pat Toomey, Rob Portman, who I was chief economist too for six years, they, they've all left. They've all been driven out by, by Trumpism. I guess in the Senate, Mitt Romney, who's his own you know, lightning rod with much of your audience, at least has been working really hard on trying to put together Social Security and Medicare reforms. On the House side, there actually is a group of about 70 House members who are working behind the scenes on a grand deal. Uh, led mostly by um, the House, the, the chairman of the House Budget Committee, Congressman Arrington, and Scott Peters, who's a Democrat, are doing a lot behind the scenes on Social Security and Medicare. The the interesting thing is, it's like an underground rock band that no one knows about. I I have members of Congress call me and say I want to work on Social Security and Medicare and deficit reduction, but nobody can know I'm doing this. <laughs> and we can't we can't put anything out and it can't get leaked because I'm going to get beat up by my own party and by my own party leaders and by my voters if anybody finds out. So the members that I'm mentioning are the ones who are public. There's actually a couple dozen working behind the scenes, but they're actually a fr- I'm not allowed to, to mention them because they're so scared of being attacked, which by itself is pretty revealing of the moment we're in that Republicans can always drop the empty talking point about spending and deficits, but the ones who are actually trying to fix it are, 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 are making us swear to secrecy. Like we're the stone cutters. It's a very awkward situation for me because a lot of the things the house freedom caucus guys say, I agree with. I just don't think any of them are particularly sincere about it. Right. I mean, I, I, I put chip Roy aside. Like, I think he's recent enough. I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. But for the most part, they lost so much of the credibility under Trump that it it's really become sort of clear that, like, it's just simply a, a weapon for the other parties spending when they're in power, right? I mean, when people say, let's put it this way, just on the on the pure math of it. How does going back to Bush, the last, what, four presidents? That's Bush, Obama, Trump, Biden. What are their comparative records on debt and deficit stuff? Uh, that's great. I've written, these are, I've written a full report on each president uh, and, and, and their overall record on debt and deficits. The way that I measure presidents is by legislation because a lot of the change in deficits are driven not by legislation, but by the economy and by programs that were already in the baseline. If you actually go by the legislation they signed, Bush added $7 trillion in legislation over eight years. Obama added $5 trillion over eight years. And Trump added $8 trillion over four years. So again, it goes seven, five, eight. With Trump doing it in half the time, 
and then Biden is already up to about five trillion, almost all of which was done in his first two years, which was an amazing spree. That was that was an amazing record. So, I mean, what you can say is they've all been bad. They've all increased deficits. Trump is really the outlier. That being said, you could always give caveats. President Bush had had 9-11 happen. Trump had the pandemic happen. You know, there, there's no value judgment made in these numbers. And because once you start doing that, everyone's going to start arguing that, well, my stuff is okay and your stuff isn't. Right. Financial crisis under Obama, essentially. Financial crisis. Right. I mean, it, it immediately devolves into a partisan food fight. But Right, you have basically six, uh, f- uh, seven trillion for Bush, five trillion for Obama, and eight trillion for Trump in half the time. Um, and, and the thing with, with respect to the Freedom Caucus, I guess my frustration with the Freedom Caucus is they spend a lot of time tweeting, they spend a lot of time holding press conferences. They have produced no budget plan actually showing the cuts they want. There is there is not a Freedom Caucus budget blueprint. They have produced press releases naming a couple programs they would cut. There is there is no 10-year balanced budget plan from the Freedom Caucus at all. And in fact, a lot of the people in the Freedom Caucus will take off the table 75% of the budget. Social Security, Medicare, Defense, Veterans, and Interest. And even the discretionary cuts that they're kind of paralyzing Congress with right now are actually really minor it's 130 billion dollars for one year and 80 billion of that is one-time rescissions of irs funding so it's really only about 50 billion dollars out of a deficit of two trillion heading to three trillion and so i admire their zeal but I, I wish they would spend a little more time actually working constructively to put out proposals rather than calling everybody else names, which is, unfortunately, I've been on the receiving end from Congressman Roy, uh, uh, who has gone pretty personal against me in the past year. So that's coloring my response a little bit. Fair. That's, that's totally fair. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not willing to go too out on a limb to defend Chip Roy. It's just that I think that he is at times shown... Maybe it's just he has a higher IQ than a lot of those other guys, and I'm I'm mistaking that, you know. So I think every single time you've been on here, we've talked about how if interest rates just go to back to their historical norms, cats will sleep with dogs and the world will be over, right? Um, I, I'm sorry to use all these accounting terms. But so um, interest rates are high, right? Just so people get the context of why deficit sort of doubled, Um what has that done to our interest payments? What are our interest payments going forward look like? Have we refinanced? Was the refinancing of some of these things back in the day forestalling worse things to come? You know, just what does that picture look like? The amazing thing is people earlier said we, we should borrow when interest rates are low because, you know, it's free money. The problem with that logic is the federal government doesn't lock in the interest rates with long-term borrowing. They're not doing 30-year borrowing like a mortgage. They're, I mean, most of our borrowing is done on 3 to 12 to sometimes 36-month bonds. So whenever interest rates reset, you're going to get buried. In the last two years, interest has doubled from $350 billion to almost $700 billion. And it's heading, depending on interest rates, 
interest rate, interest costs are heading towards $2 trillion in a decade. That means that as much as, as 30% of your taxes could be paying interest on the debt by the end of the decade. Uh, long term, it's pretty scary because I wrote a report a couple of years ago where I gamed out the long-term budget under different interest rates. And what I essentially came up with is that 4% is the tipping point. If long-term interest rates exceed 4% or go to 5%, things get really ugly. You start looking at a debt going to 2 to 3 to 350% of GDP. At that point, um, interest costs become 80 to 90% of your taxes. 4 to 5 or about 5% is really the tipping point. Anything over 4% we're in deep trouble. Well, the 10-year bond right now is over 4%. So we're going to keep rolling over into this. And you know, just to put a scary number on it, every point interest rates rise adds 30 trillion dollars over 30 years in interest costs which is the cost of adding another defense department. So every time rates go up one point long term, you've just added another Pentagon. So interest rates are the ballgame. Like we we have essentially gambled the entire long-term federal budget on the hope that interest rates stay below 4% forever. I, I'm not comfortable with that gamble. You know what you should do? It would be a good gimmick for MI is... um. You know how there's like that tax freedom day? Like this is where how far into the year you have to work just to pay your taxes. And it's it's usually like in May, right? I think something like that. April, May. You should do a debt freedom day. Like if all of your money just went to paying off the federal debt, all of your income, how many months into the year would you work? And it sounds like you're talking about early March, maybe? Yeah, it, it, the date is growing quickly. Again, like, you know, by the end of the decade, if it's about 30% of revenues, you know, that means that by, you know, you're going to be working until, you know, April just to pay the interest on the debt. It's it's going to be the biggest pro. Sooner than people think, interest is going to become the largest expenditure in the federal budget. And it's just so stupid because you're not getting anything for it. Things look bad, right? Again, the problem is I kind of know your answer, but I have to ask it because this is this, this due diligence thing. What would you do about it? First thing is stop digging. That means start paying for start paying for your current bills. Uh, if you're going to increase discretionary spending, pay for it. If you're going to increase mandatory spending, pay for it. If you're going to increase, if you're going to cut taxes, pay for it. And this is going to become a very relevant next year. When we have the mother of all fiscal cliffs, the tax cuts expiring, the discretionary spending caps expiring, the ACA expansion expiring, the infrastructure bill expiring, and the cherry on top, we have to hit the debt limit at the same time. So they're going to have to do this in a way that doesn't blow up the deficit. Longer term, you have to put everything on the table. Social Security, Medicare, and middle-class taxes, as well as because everything's going to have to take a hit. You're going to have to put foreign aid on the table and defense and tax the rich. Every The only way this works is with shared sacrifice, not just because there isn't one policy solution that can close all the gap, but also politically. And my complaint right now is Republicans or conservative think tanks 
who create these conservative fantasy proposals that say, we're going to solve the 30-year budget completely by, by Republican selves, by getting rid of all these programs. The voters are never going to accept a partisan solution to Social Security, Medicare, and taxes. You'll get demolished. So really, the only way to do this is for both parties to hold hands together and jump. And you're going to have to put Social Security, Medicare, and middle-class taxes on the table. I, I also caution Republicans, and I discussed this in the Dispatch article last week, this doesn't mean you should follow Paul Ryan's method of putting out your own Republican marker bill on how to touch on how to reform Social Security and Medicare. Because the minute you do that, you're just going to become a target and you're going to be demagogued. Really, the only way to do this is, is you have to work with Democrats behind the scenes while making a public case for reform and then unveil the proposal together. Because once you come out with Social Security, you're caught. I mean, look at Nikki Haley. All she did was say, let's raise the Social Security eligibility age in 40 years from now. And everybody pummeled her. You can't negotiate Social Security and Medicare reform in public. You really just need both parties doing it behind the scenes, which is a heavy lift, but it's the only way to do it. Yeah, I and mean, this gets to one of my bugaboos, which is that transparency is not necessarily always good, right? You cannot negotiate. So like I, I've made this point before, um, and I, I first got it from Mike Duncan from his Revolutions podcast. I want to give him credit, but I've been I now look for proof about this all the time. And I, I think it's really an interesting thing. One of the reasons why the French Revolution goes off the rails versus the American Revolution is that the French revolutionaries always had their meetings in public. And so what happened was you'd get these guys and the most irresponsible voices that pandered to the peanut galleries who were often drunk, right? And um, and so if you were like a nice de Tocquevillian liberal centrist, you know, Republican monarchist kind of person, you would get booed down by the Jacobins talking about hanging the priests with the entrails of the king and all this kind of stuff. And the rhetorical ratchet effect of having to pander to constituencies that were in the room was one of the things that led it off the rail. Meanwhile, the American Revolution or the American Constitutional Convention was a smoke-filled room. Like you could not have negotiated that in public. You had to present a final product and then say up or down on it, right? And there are examples of this going back to Simpson-Bowles, where like the second there's a proposal that's floated in public, the unions will eat the Democrats alive. If it's a social security thing, everyone gets eaten alive. If it's tax hikes, Republicans get eaten alive. And you got to have, you basically got to get the whole thing worked out and then just say, um, you know, we got them to put all this stuff on the table and that's why we put the tough on the table. But if you try to do it in real time, if it's on C-SPAN, it's just never going to get done. Absolutely. I mean, there is there is absolutely such a thing as too much transparency. You can't negotiate Social Security and Medicare changes on Twitter and with dueling press releases. Absolutely. You know, again, I worked in the Senate for six years and it I was I was in the room during many of the deficit grand deal negotiations. And it was really amazing how different the lawmakers would would talk to each other when there weren't cameras around. You would have, I mean, I remember prominent Democrats pointing out that 
the Democratic talking points on on issue X are completely fake. And of course, the Republicans are right. And Republicans would admit that, yeah, what, what we sing on issue Y is also totally fake. You guys are right. And then they would go out to the cameras and blast each other using the same partisan talking points that they had that they had made fun of in the same room earlier. I also remember times when there would be a bipartisan meeting of the Senate Finance Committee behind the hearing room, and they would have the most fruitful, intelligent, bipartisan compromise discussion, and then they'd all walk out to gavel the hearing and yell at each other for an hour. It's completely performative. And again, you cannot negotiate sensitive issues through press releases. And what we learned again with Paul Ryan is you actually poison the well because the minute a Republican puts out a specific proposal on Social Security and Medicare, every Democrat in town is pressured to put out a press release taking that off the table. So if anything, you've just actually poisoned the well on that proposal rather than move the debate forward. It's got to be behind the scenes. Just explain. You don't have to explain it because uh, one of the rules on here is that we don't do monetary policy because I just have too many people who I respect on different sides of these questions that, you know, um, plus velocity of money, M1, all these kinds of things. It, it makes me want to set my head on fire. but. How much do you think the rise in inflation is attributable to, let's put it this way, Democratic policies or Republican policies, to political decisions rather than a whole bunch of exogenous things having to do with the pandemic, supply chains, uh, global commodity markets? Because I think politically, there's a perfectly valid argument maybe not the extreme version of it, but there's a softer, you know, a softer version of it that says Biden's spending on the American rescue plan and all that stuff at the beginning contributed to inflation. I don't think you can make the case that it caused the inflation because there's just too much inflation in other parts of the world. Right. So how do you think about it? Like, is he like, how much blame is it on American domestic policymaking, either under Trump or Biden or both? And how much of it is the vicissitudes of a global you know, economy? We were always going to have some inflation coming out of the pandemic. You had all of this massive amounts of government money thrown around the economy that was just waiting to be spent. You also had supply chain problems. So you were going to have rising demand and constrained supply. And as it was always waiting for the economy to open up. As soon as the economy opened up, it was going to be a deluge. The Research that I've read suggests that the inevitable inflation was going to be, was probably going to max out at about four to five percent. How did we get to eight percent? Well, according to the San Francisco Federal Reserve, the, the policies of basically the Biden administration bumped it up from four to five up to eight. This was primarily the American Rescue Plan, which was different from the earlier uh, big expenditures in that the American Rescue Plan was enacted after the economy was already opening up, which meant it was done at the worst time when, when demand was already going to be rising and supply chains were already going to you know, constrain all of this, this new demand from reopening. And so... You also, of course, had 
Biden's uh, tariffs. You had uh, Buy America. You have all of the stuff that, that the president has done, student loans, um, which even even if we didn't do the big student loan forgiveness, there were there was a student loan forgiveness. A study by the San Francisco Fed said that we would have been about about four to five percent max if not for all of Biden's policies. How does that compare to Europe? It's a little different. Some people say, well, Europe had similar to inflation to us. So that means that we didn't do anything wrong. The two problems with that are, number one, it could just be possible Europe made the same policy mistakes we did. Europe spent too much money coming out of the pandemic as well. Um, but the other difference is a lot of Europe's inflation was driven by energy costs, uh, specifically energy co- energy constraints coming out of the pandemic. A lot of what happened in Russia with the invasion of Ukraine, w- pushing up energy prices and their dependence on that energy was a bigger contributor there, while fiscal policy was a bigger contributor in America. So just saying well, we did the same thing as Europe. That means we did nothing wrong. Ours was more fiscal policy driven and theirs was more energy policy driven related to the war with some of the same fiscal policy mistakes over there. Right. And presumably some fraction, I mean, I don't think it's more than a percentage or two, it's just a guess, of inflation is contagious, right? I mean, like in a global economy with our biggest trading partners, if prices go up here, not like prices are going to get lower over there, right? They may not, it may not, again, I don't think it's a lot. Prices are not locked, but it's hard to believe that with the, just because of the role of substitution effect, if the products for widget here go up to, you know, 5X, then you're going to look for European widgets, which are only 3X, and, but because the increased demand is going to drive the prices up to 5X too, or to 4.5X or whatever, right? So, don't I mean, so you believe that Trump's got a bad record to defend on debt. But do you think that the policies that those policies that drove up the debt under Trump were part of the inflation story? Or do you think that that really does not fall on his lap? A small part of it. I mean, I think, you know. People point to the tax cuts and the tariffs being inflationary. I mean, the ta- if the tax cuts were inflationary, it, it, they didn't start becoming inflationary until 2021. That doesn't make a lot of sense. The tariffs, I'm sure, have pushed up prices, but it wasn't a big spike after 2021 either. That was kind of baked into a slightly higher price level right before the pandemic. The big spike that began in 2021, I, I think some of it, like again, going up to maybe about 4 to 5%, was supply chains and the money that was already in the system from the COVID spending under Trump. I think that was a modest, I think we could have maxed out at about four to five percent from there. But it was Biden pushed Biden pushed it up to eight. And so I think there's a there's a lot of blame to go around, but I think we would have been in a lot better situation if we could have peaked inflation at four to five percent than at eight percent. I think those ex those last extra few points cost a lot of households a lot of money. All right, just another cleanup operation, you know, before I have you back here in six months to have the same podcast. Um, the IRS stuff, right? So the, first of all, have you ever gotten a good answer, a plausible answer about 
what we do, what, what part of government collects tax revenues if we abolish the IRS? Is there an answer to that question? I'm serious. I, mean, I hear it all the time. The, the Santa said we're going we're gonna to get a flat tax without an IRS. So I joked on Twitter that apparently the flat tax rate would be zero because no one's going to be collecting it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's again, I think there's a really good constitutional argument or a really interesting constitutional argument that um, we should get rid of the FBI. You know, uh, my friend Charlie Cook will make it. I will nod along. Say, oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. What are we going to do about all the federal crimes that that we think should be federal crimes? And who is going to like be the cops for that? And and that's the same thing with the IRS. I do not like the IRS. I've been audited. It was not fun. I'm still walking funny. But the idea that you're not going to have an agency collect, someone's got to be collecting the money, right? Someone's got to be just taking the checks out of the mail, right? And I just don't understand what the abolish the IRS thing is supposed to be. Is it, and 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 I just never hear a good answer to it. I, I ask people every now and then, they're like, well, what, what, how do we collect taxes in this country? And they're like, eh, you're, you're missing the point. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm asking for the point. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going to go back to the nineties and date us with the term that this stuff is boob bait for Bubba's mm -hmm. uh, abolish. The IRS is it's, it's not supposed to make sense. There is no follow-up answer. It is purely an applause line for people who just really hate taxes and think they pay too much. It hasn't been thought up at all beyond that the only partial answer i've ever gotten is states could collect all of the taxes and send them to washington like before the irs was created in the early 1800s of course the difference being there was no federal income tax most of the government federal government the government was spending about two percent of gdp and mostly that was like you know small excise taxes you couldn't at all run anything close to what what the federal government is going to need on that beyond that no you're right there is never there's never been an answer for who collects taxes and and what i'm snarkily told is well that's the point there will be no taxes well okay yeah i mean okay um so but on the irs agents stuff it's what is just I mean, it, it's not eighty-eight thousand new gestapo door kickers right i mean just like what 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 are the facts of it it was 80 billion dollars over 10 years um it is to be split between taxpayer services modernation operations and tax enforcement they're not hiring 80,000 new agents i mean they, they're gonna probably hire quite a few thousand but some of the money is going to go for for the fact that 80 percent of all taxpayer calls go to the irs go unanswered they have a mail correspondence backlog of 31 million. And when they receive, this is the, my favorite example. When the IRS receives paper returns in the mail, they have to manually enter your tax return into their computers. They actually have to sit there and go line by line and type your tax return into your computer, into their computers. And if they make a mistake, if they hit a wrong number, it's going to be flagged as, as, as an error in your tax return and delay your processing. I don't understand the problem with fixing that. They're probably going to hire. Yeah, they're going to get they're going to get somewhat bigger. And I had a Washington Post op-ed last month that is going to make me really unpopular where I said conservatives should stop refusing to fund the IRS. That tax evasion has been pushed up so high 
audits are on, on the super wealthy are so low that the tax gap is now $625 billion a year. Explain what the tax gap is. The tax gap is the amount of taxes that are unpaid, that are owed, but not paid. So we're not talking about tax avoidance. We're not talking about using a deduction. We're talking criminal tax evasion, or at least fine-worthy tax evasion, $625 billion a year. And I made the argument in my op-ed for conservatives that, look, deficits are going to go through the roof. And the government is going to have to raise money one way or another. I sure as hell would rather raise a portion of that money by closing the tax gap for millionaires before I'm going to raise taxes on families. And every $100 billion that we close the tax gap reduces the amount of tax hikes on everybody else by $750 per year in order to meet the same revenue number. So I think if you're heading into an era where the government is going to be desperate for new tax revenue, protecting millionaires from audits is probably a luxury conservatives can no longer afford. Yeah. And also, I mean, but like on this, so on this audit thing, right. Um, you know, there was that report, that data that came out, I don't know, was it like a year ago about how there's a real disparity. Low income people get audited more than high income people. And this is one of these things where it's really easy to demagogue. But also when you start to think it through, well, you know, rich people have good accountants who are going to file tax returns that are less error prone. Let's put it that way, because a good accountant actually has to sign off on it and they're liable in all sorts of ways, professionally, reputationally, or actually financially, if there are serious problems with the tax return. Right. And so, and they're also going to be just super complicated. So like, I can see why those things don't get audited as much because they're, they're just not going to be wrong. I mean, like the, it's going to be one of those things where the real, you know, like what's the old cliche, the real scandal is not what's illegal, but what's legal. Right. If you're really rich, you're probably not criminally evading taxes, right? It's, um, it's people on the sort of the meteor part of the bell curve who have considerable household wealth, but they're not Bill Gates or anything like that. Like there's no, there's no incentive for Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or one of these guys to save an extra $50 million on their taxes illegally, right? I mean, like legally, sure, but like illegally, no. And so, like, I, I go back and forth about this audit thing because I, I just forcing people to pay what they owe. I'm totally fine with. But how much of that would be would would come from new audits, and how much of that is just because the IRS isn't like following up on you know the logical consequences of of the returns that they're getting? I think. I mean, most of most of the tax gap does come from the richest five percent. About sixty percent of the tax gap comes from the richest 5%. The biggest driver of the tax gap is income underreporting. It's 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 businesses, small businesses, um pass-through businesses, not necessarily small, but pass-through businesses and corporations underreporting income. So I I do think there's a lot of creativity that accountants will use to underreport income, some of which is perfectly legal 
and some of which is not. And there's a line. And that's why there is a case for clean tax code in order to reduce tax tax evasion. Because if there weren't so many carve-outs, it wouldn't be so easy to try to find where the line is between legal and, and illegal ways to shelter income. But when you mention just the cost of mistakes, a massive driver underneath for, for the non-wealthy is the EITC. Yeah, something like 25% of EITC payments are fraudulent. And it's not necessarily because, you know, poor poor moms and dads are are just are trying to cheat the IRS, although I'm sure it happens occasionally. It's a lot of just errors. Um the the EITC is complicated and a lot of families make big mistakes calculating or claiming the EITC and it is one of the bigger problems driving the tax gap. But this is what happens when you essentially put the IRS in, 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 in charge of social policy. The EITC could have been done through a spending program. Instead, we made it a complicated thing on your tax, on your tax return and forced people to calculate it themselves. And they made a lot of mistakes. And it's 25% of the program spending is mistakes. Is there any hopeful, like, if AI cures Alzheimer's? You know, is there something on that side that? Oh hell! If AI, all we need is old people living longer, collecting Social Security <laughs> and Medicare. Even no, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, no, honestly, here here's the tough thing: is if if we we cure diseases, people live longer. That's a wonderful thing. It also means they collect more Social Security. If we grow the economy, that will produce more revenue. But also economic growth automatically pushes up social security benefits because they're based on wages and pushes up Medicare costs because higher income people consume more Medicare and pushes up interest costs because higher growth raises interest rates. So there's really no perfect AI, you know, we're going to have a burst of economic growth and we'll be fine. I think economic growth is great and I think it can reduce the deficit somewhat, but yeah, I mean, this is this is actually the thing that worries me is is there's just this this universal search for we won't have to make the tough decisions if we find X. And that's what happens on Twitter all the time. Whenever I talk about Social Security and Medicare, everybody has their pet solution to the deficit. Everyone has their easy. You just got to do X. And every one of them is insufficient. Like if it was that easy, we would have, we done, would have it. done it. Yeah. Yeah. And and so ultimately, I think, you know, we're not gonna fix this because Ross Perot comes around and convinces us to fix it. We're gonna fix it because at a certain point the bond market's gonna cut us off. And when the punch bowl is taken away, the party's over. That's probably what it's gonna take. And just one last factual thing, and then we can wrap it up. But um I get into this fight with people from time to time. I try not, unlike you, I try not to to debate entitlement policy on Twitter. Bless you. Yeah. Well, was, I, I make other mistakes on Twitter. Don't get me wrong. But um, this common refrain, I'm sure you hear it several times a week or a day or an hour, you know, that Social Security is not an entitlement because you're just getting the money that you put in. Every politician loves to say this. Uh, it's a sacred compact, as as Biden likes to say, and all this kind of stuff. My understanding is that you get more out of Social Security than you put in pretty quickly, and um, uh, 
And so at least the overage between your contributions and what you get is fairly called an entitlement, right? Or welfare state stuff or whatever, whatever descriptor you want to put on pejorative or not. Um, is there anybody, is there any demographic for whom this is not true or does everybody get more than they put in eventually? And I, like, if you die at 65 and a half, maybe you don't get out of it what you put in. Right. But just generally speaking, what, where, where are the thresholds where people start taking more out of it than they put in? Well, first, first, yeah, I mean, the point on Social Security being an entitlement, it is true that most people receive much more than they pay in, even if you adjust for inflation and present value. But that's not the only reason Social Security is an entitlement. It is legally classified as an entitlement because you are legally entitled to the money. Um, all federal programs are either entitlements or discretionary. And the difference is for an entitlement... Congress doesn't cap how much it spends per year. Everybody who meets the qualifications gets paid. And so when I hear people say, it's not an entitlement, it's my money and I'm entitled to it, I kind of want to shoot myself because that's exactly why it's called an entitlement, because it's your money and you're entitled to it. And everybody who qualifies is, gets paid until Congress changes the law. In terms of who comes out ahead, Basically, the the tables Brook the Brook uh, Brookings and Urban um, actually there was mostly the Urban Institute that does a report every year on lifetime benefits for Social Security and Medicare for different demographics, and what Urban said is that pretty much all groups will come out ahead, all income groups will come out ahead. Ironically, it's some of the richer people who might come out ahead less because. Oh. Social Security replenishes a higher share of your income if you're poor than if you're rich. If you're rich, it, it which is why that's why the, the tax is capped because it, it replenishes less of your money. So if you're going to live the normal age, pretty much everyone comes out ahead, especially the poor. Right. Which you know, look if you were if you had to have it work that way, you would want it to be for the low income people, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean that. You would design it this way if you were actually thinking about these things. All right. Well, I hope everyone loved their spinach. Um, <laughs> um, I, I don't mean to sound too dyspeptic. I'm just, uh, I'm also just really exhausted here. But um, is there anything that we missed that you feel like we actually ap absolutely have to cover that you feel like burning with rage about it? Anyway. Not just the, the presidential campaign is going to increasingly be the silly season on these issues. And I think, you know, people should be ready to hear a lot of nonsense about about deficit spending and, and taxes over, over the rest of the year. And don't believe anything any politician tells you who's running for president on these issues. Yeah. So uh, on that, I mean, so Nikki's proposal, Nikki Haley's proposal, is it fair to say it's arguably necessary but not sufficient is the is the kindest thing you could say about it nikki haley's in the worst of both worlds because she's rhetorically saying the right stuff about the need to fix social security and medicare but her actual proposal as expressed on the campaign is woefully insufficient um she says we'll raise the eligibility age for people currently in their 20s so these are people who are going to retire in 45 years well, the trust fund hits zero in a decade. 
So her solution is a very small tweak that would begin 35 years after the trust fund is exhausted. Um, you got, I think this is kind of, the fact that Haley is getting beat up for this proves how completely out of touch, delusional, and in denial a lot of people are about what's actually coming with Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid. There are going to be much more drastic changes than that much sooner. Um, but like I said, it's the worst of both worlds. She's because she's getting beat up for the rhetoric, but her proposal is is too weak to make a difference and, and too late yeah. to make a difference. I mean, I'm enraged a lot by a lot of things going on on the Republican side these days. I think everyone can understand that. But Rand Paul came up with this, you know, hashtag never Nikki thing for usual dumb Rand Paul reasons. And and then after one of the debates where Nikki proposed exactly what you just described, changing the retirement age for people in their 20s, um, the official Democratic Party Twitter account said, did you hear that, everybody? Nikki Haley is coming after your retirement. Hashtag never Nikki. And the, it was just, a, it's a really small example of the collective action problem that we're in right now, where whether you think it's the grand conspiracy for Biden to run against Trump, or whether you just think no one takes two seconds to think about what, what they're doing to make all these problems worse. But for the Democrats to demagogue the person who stands in the way of the person they think is Hitler by saying she's being outrageously irresponsible about tweaking retirement age for people in their 20s 45 years from now, it just shows you why we can't have nice things. I mean, and I remember when that happened, I tweeted it out and said, anyone who thinks Social Security is not going to change for the next 50 years is completely delusional. And I completely agree with your point that Democrats are, the DNC is really scraping the bottom of the barrel for demagoguery in order to prop up Trump. If he is the, the you know, danger we're told, it's an odd choice. Yeah, well, it's only going to get worse for the next 10 months, but uh, we'll have you back. You know, that's what we do here. Brian Riedel, thank you so much for doing this. Always good to have you. Uh, stay sane, stay sober, and um, <laughs> we'll talk again. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Okay, so Brian has left the studio. Um, I hope everyone understands that I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek and giving a hard time because he's a friend about the eat your spinach and he's depressing and he repeats himself stuff. I mean, there's a real point there because the numbers are the numbers and we've done nothing to fix the numbers. And so the numbers continue to be bad and they're not going to change absent political and policy action to make them change. Um, but I do think it's worth talking about this stuff and the rhetoric gets so outside um, outsized and, and unrelated to the actual facts that it's good to remind people from time to time about what the actual facts are. So, um, um, thanks to Brian. I will be having him back. He's a good dude. And, um, thanks to everybody who came out for this event in, in new Albany outside of Columbus last night. Um, I'll tell you more about it, um, on the solo. Um, it was interesting and uh, that's about it. You know, we'll have all the punditry on the Dispatch podcast at the end of the week. And um, now I got to go write a G file without falling asleep um, at the wheel. Um, so there you go. And uh, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. <laughs>